Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the new edition of TLS Voices. My name is Stig Abel, editor of the Times Literary Supplement. Joining me this week is Token Northerner pronunciation guru, Thea Lenadutsi. Hi, Thea. I should probably get you to pronounce my name correctly <laughs> for a start, Thea. Thea. <laughs> I normally say Thea. Why do I say Thea Don't then? Know. And, and, and I never do Lenadutsi with proper Italian flow. If I did, though, Lenadutsi like that, you would think. No, I'd be, I'd be, word, I'd be thrilled. Would you? Yeah. Okay, next, next week I'm <laughs> going to be practicing my rolled R's. Uh, coming up on the show this week, we have Ruth Skirt on the life and loves of Beryl Bainbridge and how they both intersected with her novel writing. Jessica Laudis on an iconic New York location, the Chelsea Hotel, and an almost iconic New York literary figure, Tamat Janowitz. Best hipster trousers on for Thea and me as we enter the world of the New York trendy demimonde. And then Dinah Birch has written about the hard-working J.M.W. Turner, that most English, perhaps, of painters. She will be joining Thea and me. And finally, we'll be discussing Shakespeare. The TLS has produced a book of the best bits of our writing on him over the last 114 years. Michael Keynes, our resident Shakespearean, has edited it and will pop in to talk about it. Nobody, I should say, will be allowed to refer to Shakespeare as the barred at any point in the discussion. Are you happy to accept that very, condition? Very, very happy to accept that condition. Excellent stuff. Uh, <laughs> first then to Beryl Bainbridge, for whom posthumously, of course, it's been rather a big year. Brendan King's biography, and he wrote for the TLS about it a few weeks ago, was published with some related noise, largely focusing on Bainbridge's literary sex life. Beryl Bainbridge was born in 1932 and died in 2010 and was regarded by many as one of Britain's key post-war novelists. Her early work had a domestic realist setting, though she moved later in her career to writing historical fiction. Her final novel, The Girl in the Polka Dot Dress, was published in 2011 and was edited by her biographer and amanuensis Brendan King. Ruth Skur, a world expert in that smudgy liminal era where life writing and life writing mingle and merge, has reviewed the biography for us in the TLS and joins Thea and me now. Hi Ruth. Hi, so why do you think there was a fuss about this book? So I even saw this extracted in the Mail on Sunday, which is not the most literary of publications. Why is there such a fuss about Beryl Bainbridge in this book, do you think? I think there always was a fuss about Beryl Bainbridge. And if you think about the extraordinary event of her being awarded a Booker Prize posthumously just for the best of Beryl, you can see that this is someone who has a fascination and aura around her. And this biography um, has long been anticipated because it's been written by someone who knew her extremely well, who who worked with her um, and actually edited, uh, Brendan King um, edited her last novel, which she wasn't able to finish before she died. And the biography, in your words, is a roll call of her lovers, a succession of unsuitable, often married men beating an apologetic retreat from her bedroom almost as soon as they entered it. And I want to talk more about her, her fiction, but it struck me reading this book, and maybe I've judged Brendan King's biography wrongly, that... Was there is there too much focus uh, of her sex life, and I and I wonder whether a male writer of Beryl Bainbridge's stature would be treated in the same way as she's been treated here. Well, first thing to say is it's not a dismissive treatment of her love life. It's an honest and, in that sense, very direct 
explanation of how important it was to her. And this is someone who began keeping a list of her, her lovers, a very witty list, when she was still a teenager. I mean, who else lists their their boyfriends um, from age 14 onwards in terms of their nationality, how long the relationship lasts, etc. And throughout the arc of her life, her sexual expression, her attraction to men, uh, what happens between her and men is a very, very important part of, of her life and her experience. So in many ways, it's acknowledging that as a creative force within her life. It's, it's not a sort of sordid and tittle-tattle approach. Um, it tries, I think, to capture the seriousness with which she took sex in her life and one thing that's very striking is towards the end of the book when after Beryl goes through through the menopause she is advised not to actually be on HRT but she thinks that it is affecting her writing and that without going on to HRT she's not going to be able to continue writing and the doctors end up prescribing it to her and agreeing that her quality of life as a as a woman as a writer will be improved by taking the drug. The roll call and the and the lists that she made, it seems to fit very well with this image that we get of her as a kind of a collector of stories or kind of harvester of experiences and feelings, which she then she, she sort of stores up and deploys in her novels. Yes, that's right. I think she, I mean, she's someone who, who has an extraordinary amount of um, erotic encounter. She only needs to go to her child's sort of harvest festival at the school to meet someone with whom she becomes interested and fascinated and sets up a rapport. She's a very, very receptive person. She's constantly sort of falling in, into other people's stories. And you could say, you know, retrospectively, she's gathering some of the information that's going to to inspire or be worked into her novels. And, and is her real life and her fiction, do you think you can, not least reading this biography, you can see the points where they they intersect. She's She, she is writing to a certain extent about her own experiences in, in the fictional form. Well, that's very important. I mean, she makes this extraordinary claim that there is no difference between her fiction and her lived experience, that they are one and the same thing. And I think actually the biography makes a convincing case for that because it's sort of exploring the bedrock of, of her imagination. And she also thinks there's no difference between her historical novels that she wrote books, you know, that were very, very specifically historical, the Crimea War, the Sinking of the Titanic, a book about Dr. Johnson. But actually, she doesn't, in her mind, divide those off from the books that are very much more directly based on her biography and her lived experience. Uh, and why do you think she turned to historical fiction? Because there, there seems to be a point at which she did make that turn, and then, if not all, a lot of her later books were uh, historical fiction. Well, that's very interesting. And there used to be a sort of conventional way of describing not just Beryl Bainbridge, but also Penelope Fitzgerald as novelists who started off writing about the experiences they'd had, ran out of material, so then started writing historical novels. And that's an extremely reductive and very narrow way to think about the connection between those books, because actually they come from the same imaginative sensibility and in many senses, inhabiting a historical place isn't so different from going back into your own past. It, what matters is what you construct with the, what the sort of the fabric and the construct that you make out of those memories and, and images. I wondered if there was a special interest for you in that vein, I mean, being so engaged in the limits and possibilities of biographical writing, um, if there was a special interest in the novel According to Queenie, which kind of purports to tell us about a particular chapter in someone's life, Samuel Johnson's life and then sort of turns into something quite different. It sort of tends to be sending up the very idea of biography. Well, I'm very interested in that particular novel because there you have Bainbridge exploring oblique angles on history you know, from the perspective of Queenie, the daughter of the woman Johnson is, is obsessed with. And that gives her the opportunity for subversion, for questioning, for, for de-centering some of those narratives that have grown up around someone as iconic.
iconic as, as Johnson. So I think I am actually yeah, absolutely extremely interested in what kinds of a historical subversion or, or questions can, can be raised with, within the novel that are much more difficult to do outside of it. I mentioned in, in both your thoughts on this, when we look now at Beryl Bainbridge's place, if not in the canon, in, 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 in the sort of where how important she is as a writer. And, you know, it occurred to me looking at this, you know, we've just carried a, an excerpt from the biography of Angela Carter. Um, and would you say in 100 years' time, either or both or, or neither of those would be being read? How important is Beryl Bainbridge as a, as a post-war British writer, do you think? Well, I think we have to do this in very substantial terms. So, I mean, the canon as such is always going to be um, porous and open to fashions and change. Writers often decline in their reputation and then they come back in again, etc. But one very specific example is the debt that um, Hilary Mantel says she owes to Beryl Bainbridge. Oh, and, you know, there it's very interesting because there's another woman who goes on to do really fascinating things within the historical novel who actually says that, you know, when, when and she was starting out writing, she used to think to herself, well, if Beryl Bainbridge can get away with these macabre stories, maybe I can too. And there you see the kind of influence and the path-breaking that goes on to actually ha- have a, a wonderful, um, liberating effect on, on the next generation of, of novelists. So I would say, I mean, certainly anybody who wanted to write very seriously about the uh, historical novel in sort of post-war Britain would, would have to take Beryl Bainbridge extremely seriously. Yeah, does she mean much to you as as a novelist? Yeah, I mean, I think for me, Angela Carter possibly has has the edge purely because, I mean, she was, I think, more overtly political and kind of knee deep in her time. So for that reason, she possibly, she's more, for me, more likely to be read in a hundred years' time. In part also because she, she I think, the bloody chamber still on on the British curriculum for sim- simple reasons like that. But I mean, for what it's worth. I don't know. I think I think maybe when we read new novelists, there 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 are people who seem to show a clearer debt to someone like Angela Carter. That may just be because her style is so much more recognisable. That's um, I think it's a really good point, uh, Ruth. Because it, it, would would you be able to, if we were to quote a, a piece of Bainbridge prose, would you be able to say, oh, that's Beryl Bainbridge, in a way that you probably would with say Angela Carter? I wonder. Well, the punctuation. <laughs> you make you make a wonderful point about the punctuation, Ruth. In your but review. Beryl, she has this kind of loose, um, famously uh, very shaky grip on spelling and, and grammar. <laughs> but see, even even that's very interesting because she does, and yet she does not. When it matters to her, she can use punctuation absolutely brilliantly to express what she's meaning. And then there are other occasions where she's obviously, you know, forgotten how to spell words or something, and, and the, her notes and her the archive is full of all this sort of approximate spelling. But um, um, I don't think that means... She, I, t- I mean, the analogy that comes to my mind is is one with her painting, that she actually seems to use words and use language very much in the same way that she uses paint to portray these very, very distinctive images of the experience that she has had and you know, often featuring beds, you know, in the novels there are often beds in the street and in, in the paintings there are this great brass bed which which recurs so I mean maybe you could sort of compare her in some respects to sort of Tracy Emin type mm. uh, creative person. I mean it's interesting whether uh, this question of the style of a writer is kind of important to, to people I think it, it is to me. Do you, do you think she's a stylish writer that you read it, you, yes. you, you read a page for for the pleasure of the words, the pleasure of the constructions. That's, what's really striking about the biography is it goes right back and quotes letters she wrote when she was very young, sometimes sort of journals that she's kept, annotations to her her work, and you really encounter a natural writer there. You know these turns of phrase that she is capable of, and and the great sort of lyrical lilt within the sentences. I'm not saying that absolutely every sentence is at that level, and she probably been a poet rather than a novelist if if it were true but I think that she is someone where you really have a sense that this is someone who just just born with an ability to express herself in language just just finally
finally, uh, because we're going to have to end it here, is I'm just, just thinking that your job in many ways is often reading the letters of people who are dead. What's going to happen to your job in 50, 100 years when people don't write letters anymore? So when you're trying to, to assess the literary progress of a writer or uh, particularly a novelist uh, and a, a load of emails and texts and lols won't be recoverable uh, in a way, is that going to make the, the biographer's art very fundamentally different, do you think? Well, I think they're in, in the specific case of literary biography, it is absolutely going to have an effect because when we read those early letters and you see, um, I mean, in fact, you know, what Beryl's first husband encouraged her to, to write a book because of the pleasure of reading her letters. So the form of the letter, insofar as it is disappearing, is a very great loss to people who want to trace the development of a, of a literary gift from childhood in, into its fruition later in life. Well, Ruth, thank you so much for the piece and thank you for joining us now. You've given, I think, the book and the artist, Beryl Bamage, a lot of love here and it's, uh, it's very kind of you to join us now. OK, thank you. Bye. Um, because we don't write letters anymore and how much do you think when you're when you're reading a biography or any history, it's all based on mm. correspondence, and that's mm. just dead. I mean, correspondence mm. is over. There is no correspondence well, I suppose, anymore. I suppose it, it 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 will lead to a very different way of of kind of getting a a grip on on someone's life. So I suppose you you would go back and you know say a Facebook page or something like that. I mean, it's it's a hideous idea, but I'm sure. Well, I mean, I I guess I guess yeah, so because email. it can be. It, it's, it's still all posturing, isn't it? When you when you would sit down to write your your long letter, you were constructing an image of yourself. You were portraying yeah. yourself in a very calculated way. Um, but you were a, doing it's so a similar thing. I, but, but it's the difference, I think, between utility and beauty. Yeah, it's very hard to see beauty in a text message, whereas yeah. a letter seemed to at least, particularly in the 18th yeah. century, 19th century, whenever required it. It's less it's less sort of beautifully and structurally laid out for you. But I suppose then you might end up with something more enigmatic more yeah. more open to to or more honest to interpretation or more honest yeah i mean god if you went back to most writers say, say you went back to a writer's 15 year old facebook page or something like that that could be very embarrassing you'd, yeah. you'd hope that they've um it's got de- their privacy settings right it's depressing isn't it that's <laughs> just to not get yeah. not get involved okay I think. <laughs> okay okay uh, we move on to new york uh, where jessica laudis has reviewed two books about different characters of the city and the state first is the deranged that's jessica's uh, word memoir of tama janovitz called scream janovitz was a figure in the literary demimonde of 80s new york a place as jay mcinerney said where the name Raphael is more likely to conjure up a drug dealer than the painter janovitz despite some hype flopped as a writer turning out 10 books that never amounted to much in the public imagination scream focuses on what happens when she moved upstate to schuyler county what jessica calls a dystopian hieronymous bosch landscape strewn with bulk junk food, hunting paraphernalia and unemployed men mowing their lawns. The second book takes us back to that New York demimon, the Chelsea Hotel, that scuzzy, storied establishment visited by such luminaries as Leonard Cohen and Janis Joplin, whose owner was a second-generation Hungarian called Stanley Bard, the only time we're going to be using the word Bard in this podcast, who sometimes accepted paintings in lieu of payment. Trying to Float is by Nicola Rips, a 27-year-old who used to live in the Chelsea, a hotel that, like so many of us, clings on after being subject to extensive modernisation. <laughs> Jessica Loudest joins <laughs> Thea and me now. Jessica, how are you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? Very good, thank you. Um, let's talk about the uh, iconography of, of New York. How strong does the myth persist of the sort of bohemian hipster New York? Is that now something that has gone into the past never to be recovered, or is it still part of the city's identity, do you think? Well, it depends. It's funny. My parents came to visit from Washington a few weeks ago, and now if you want to see that, you, there are graffiti tours in uh, the Lower East Side. So it's it's certainly available as a commodity for tourists. And, um, I mean, there, there are sort of contemporary updates of it. However, typically people tend to be paying thousands and thousands of dollars in rent. So it's it's the, the kind of 70s vintage Janowitz era of like not paying much for, for rent and having having a kind of authentic bohemian lifestyle is certainly no longer available. And what are the most sort of prominent stories about the Chelsea Hotel that, that, that linger for you when, when you when you think when you when you read that book and and, and more generally? Well I mean there's uh, Sid and Nancy obviously had their famous blowout in the Chelsea. Patty Smith sets a lot of just kids in the Chelsea. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a very famous restaurant downstairs in the Chelsea, which was um, apparently hygienically not all that up to par. But you could, <laughs> you could order uh, you could order these these kind of like massive seafood dishes, and I think that was a big hangout for artists in the 70s. 
what's what's interesting about the rips book actually is she was there when she was a kid and this is i think she's maybe in her first or second year of university now she's young and so it's it's funny how like the um the, the younger generation, the people, I mean, she, she's now kind of um, carrying the torch of the Chelsea when all the people who, you know, who actually were living there are no longer, can no longer afford to live there. So it's like the, um, the legacy is now being maintained by people who had no idea what it was like to be there back in the day. Yeah, I, I was fascinated, just to come back to the Chelsea itself for a second, I was fascinated to learn that it was designed by a follower of the French utopian um, Charles Fourier. It, I mean, it really, it kind of heightens the contrast that you've got between real life in the rest of New York and then the life life at the Chelsea where, you know, the rest of Manhattan being given over to, to bankers and Donald Trump type developers and then you've got this kind of alternative reality with a, its own separate economic system almost where paintings are accepted in lieu of cash. I mean, how utopian was it as a place to grow up? Um, I think dystopian might be the better word for it, actually. <laughs> I mean, the, the apartment itself sounded very small and um not all that impressive but i think i think the at least what rips makes the case that like it was it was really sort of the characters who had kind of who were like um holdovers from this previous era who really kind of made it a distinctive place to live and i know that in recent years the chelsea has sort of split so there were still a few people who had had these incredible deals back from when bard was administering it and had just lived there forever and you know who knows what they were paying but there were there were also lots of tourists and it was it was more of a destination so i think yeah it, it has this fascinating uh, origin story in in, in these in this fourier's history but i think it also just kind of gradually sort of shifted over towards the more contemporary new york real estate and it's going to be and you said that, that your last sort of uh, that your last sentence is about it's going to reopen next year after a lengthy and controversial modernization do you is there any hint about what that modernization will entail well un- unfortunately i think they're redoing the restaurant I'm not sure yet, actually. I mean, if it's if what happened, what's happening in the rest of New York is any indication, I think it just means more stainless steel, fancier mm. rooms, and um, exposed brick. Exactly that kind of thing. <laughs> how, depre- how depressing. Um, let's talk about Tamara Janowitz briefly. She was a figure in the '80s of New York, but she didn't prosper. Do you, and, and it's, it gets a sense from reading your review about her book that there's a reason she didn't prosper. She wasn't quite up to scratch in terms of a writer. Is that fair? Do you think? I mean, it's interesting. So Slaves of New York, which was her breakout story collection, is really um, distinctive. It's got this very kind of offbeat voice to it. It seems it seems almost like it's being told by somebody who, you know, the narrator that has this kind of alien quality to her and which worked out, which worked really well, I think, in conveying kind of the oddities of milieu at the time. Her subsequent books didn't, I, I think her voice didn't land. She's got a very offbeat way of, of writing that either, that either works or doesn't for you, I think. And, um, and it doesn't seem to work for you, actually. Is that fair? I didn't, yeah, I um, I found I found there there to be a real lack of generosity, even when she was trying to be generous in in the memoir. I mean, it's about it's largely about her parents, and she had a very conflicted relationship with her father, who sounded like a bit of a perv, and um, her mother, who was a poetry professor had a very hard life and raised them more or less by by herself, her and her brother. And she just focused a lot on the more salacious details of her mother's decline, as opposed to you know. I mean, she 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 talked about what it, about growing up with her mother, but um, being a, a positive figure in her life. But it was just like the the, the details she chose to foreground. It's it seemed a bit cheap. And she seems to kind of deal in archetypes. Is that is that fair? I mean, you... yeah, absolutely. She she writes about upstate New York as if it's this kind of um, I forgot exactly what I said, but this kind of like sort of blue collar dystopian landscape. Which uh, and and obviously you know there's a there's a usefulness in using archetypes to a certain extent, but you just kind of get the sense that she's it, it just doesn't feel mm. honest as a writer. Uh, maybe we should end on this. I wonder what who has left, who's survived the best out of that eighties New York scene. She referred to you refer in the piece to to McInerney, Brett Easton Ellis, gets a, and the the Brat Pack. Who's survived best in your view um, from that world? Uh, well, you know, I think James Walcott actually is. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah, as has made it through quite well. I mean, I, I believe Jay um, McInerney's like, a, if he's not a wine critic, he's a wine critic who's semi-retired and I maybe is working on a novel, but I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I think Walcott. Um, he's just done still... a novel, actually, McInerney. Mm. There's one's just come out. Oh, has he? Yeah, I mean. Oh, wow. Sorry. No, no, no. I mean, I, I, I mean, we, we reviewed it a couple of weeks ago, sort of semi nicely, semi uh, semi not nice. I, I find Brett Easton Ellis a kind of ridiculous figure now, and actually, when you look back on him, was always a ridiculous figure potentially. Yeah, I think he really. I think Brett Easton Ellis really spoke to a moment, um, and now he seems to be speaking to Twitter primarily. <laughs> 
And that, that's yeah, the no, curse of the age, I think. He made yeah, he made exactly. a, he made a relatively interesting point though in a recent interview where he sort of cited how this kind of this seismic shift occurred in the 1970s when uh, New York City was virtually declared bankrupt and how that possibly sort of shifted the way that writers felt about their city. That's a piece that Adam Curtis picks up on in his new documentary. I don't know if you've seen that, Hypernormalization. And what, and so he's saying oh, that, I have it. I love Adam Curtis. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a very interesting document. It's very, very Adam Curtis. But the, the, the two sort of dovetailed for me, what Easton Ellis said and what he said, which was basically that this kind of handing of the city and the the futures of its citizens over to the banks in the 1970s the kind of the profound effects that this had not only on the city's physical makeup but on the kind of the psychology of its citizens too and the way that they would feel about about themselves so it kind of it if you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. It, it, it sort of spoke to this, this moment where you had a shift from perhaps the kind of the more group-based literary types of, of 1960s New York, you know, you think of like a kind of a beat type group. And then after that, we moved towards a more inward looking or, or self-oriented writer. And so you have these kind of big figures who got the great big book deals and they're, they're, more, they're more in it for the individual kind of gain than, than the kind of the group engagement. Yeah. Do, you think New York, do you think New York is a good place for a writer? Jessica, is that what, what you know? The lesson from this, or it was once in the eighties and is no longer. I think New York is a good place for a writer who has a alternative source of income. <laughs> a lot like London, then. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot like London. Uh, Jessica, thank you so much for joining us. It's two a review of two books: Tabajanaris's Scream and Nikolaya Rips Trying to Float, which is a story of the Chelsea Hotel. Jessica, thank you so much. Thanks, Jessica. Thank you. Bye. Yeah, I, I, I was a bit enthralled to Brett Easton Ellis at one point. And then, you know, so you read American Psycho and you read some of the other druggy, mm. druggier stuff and mm. you kind of think this is quite interesting. And then I remember I reviewed for the TLS, I think, 10 years ago, Imperial Bedrooms, mm, which was his that. sequel to one of his early books. Uh-huh. And it was so offensively boring. <laughs> Under the guise of being daring. I mean, uh-huh. that was what, it wasn't just boring, which was annoying. It's kind of going through the motions of that he had sort of set up himself. Exactly. But the other thing was when he tried, and then he just did loads of really, really obscene sexual violence, almost with a mm. smirk on his face saying, look how daring. I said, this yeah. is not daring. This yeah. is this is why it's boring. It's yeah. boring because it's one note. Parody kind of, of yourself. Exactly. And since that point, you kind of think, I wonder. I, I mean, I wonder. I mean, American Psycho is a great moment of time. Mm-hmm. You know, at that eighties. Mm. I think you're talking about the commoditization of New York, mm. the, the rise of the brand, and all of that, which it does brilliantly. Mm. But I wonder how great a book it is if you were mm. to reread it. You'd, you'd think this it is feels a great... very, very much of its time. It documents yeah. a very specific moment in in a city, but then, as Adam Curtis does, that the, the city and what was happening in New York became a kind of a, a jumping off point for for a whole kind of unraveling that. That, that goes much further than that one city. Uh, and it's easy to r- romanticise uh, New York, but I think th- this piece and what we're talking about probably means 
you shouldn't do it. Mm. But let's move on to something more romantic, the romanticism of J.M.W. Turner. Uh, Dinah Birch has reviewed two books, Young Mr. Turner, the first part of what she calls a spectacular biography by Eric Shanes and the extraordinary life and momentous times of J.M.W. Turner. It's a mouthful of a title by Franny Moyles. Uh, Turner was a man devoted to damned hard work, as the review makes clear, to a relentless drive towards artistic and also financial success. When he died, he left 550 oil paintings, more than 2,000 watercolours and around 30,000 works on paper. To Shane's, Turner was a high-minded votary of his art, but Moyles seeks perhaps sympathetically to show his human side, falling in love, noticing the lives of the working people around him. Ruskin, who of course did much to establish Turner's reputation, said this of his first impression of the man. Everybody had described him to me as coarse, boorish, unintellectual, vulgar. This I knew to be impossible. I found in him a somewhat eccentric, keen-mannered, matter-of-fact, English-minded gentleman. Good-natured, evidently, bad-tempered, evidently, hating humbug of all sorts, shrewd, perhaps a little selfish, highly intellectual, the powers of his mind not brought out with any delight in their manifestation or intention of display, but flashing out occasionally in a word or a look. So that's Turner fairly skewered, I would say. Uh, Dinah Birch joins uh, Thea and me now. Hi, Dinah. Hello, hello. Two biographies of, of Turner. What different things did you learn from them about him? Well, Shane's um, biography, which covers just the first 40 years of Turner's life, really is a tour de force in the quality and the range of the illustrations that it gives the reader. It's a huge book. It's a very heavy book in many ways, not least physically. Um, but it does give you the story of Turner's development in an amazing series of images. So it's a very visual biography. It is, of course, accompanied with text, and it does have, um, as you um, pointed out in your introduction, a particular perspective on Turner. Um, I think one of the things that I learned from the Shane's biography um, is as a result of quite a lot of detailed research um, that he presents on Turner's financial dealings, how important those were to him and how careful he was in ensuring um, his financial security and progress. So that's something that, that hadn't, I think, been so much in the public domain before that research had been presented. Um, Fanny Moyle has a completely different approach and makes Turner seem in many ways a more accessible figure, certainly a warmer, more friendly, more kind of human figure, if you like. There's less, of course, inevitably, really, given the different nature of the books and given that she's covering the whole life in a, um, a shorter space, um, there's less of that particularity that you find in Shane's kind of magisterial presentation of a series of images. But in some ways, uh, it's a more accessible, it's a more readable book, and it certainly does give you a sense of the, as it were, arc of, of Turner's development, what he had to contend with, and really his great triumph as a painter. And in both cases, in both biographies, he comes across as a, an artist very much formed by, by place and by circumstance. I mean, there's a fortuitous move for unknown reasons to stay with his aunt by the, um, in the countryside when he was 10, a casual visit to Margate, which introduced him to the seascapes. Um, and, then, and then there was um, 1802. Why, why was that a pivotal year for Turner? Well, it exposed him to so much that he hadn't previously seen. He was a very receptive mind, was Turner. Um, he did have, I think, that quality of intelligence that Ruskin dwells on, very responsive to what came his way. Being in a position for the first time to see what others had achieved, what he might learn, um, I think that was transformative for him. One of the things that's very striking about Turner's life and achievement, I think this emerges, in fact, in different ways from both biographies, was his quite exceptional confidence he wasn't intimidated by seeing the great art that he saw on that kind of first um, hugely important journey to um, the continent where he was exposed for the first time to the great masters um, of European art. He didn't creep away thinking, I will never live up to that. You know, he learned confidently from what he saw. And there's a sense in which he always saw those great painters as it were, as his equals. 
It was his first trip to the continent, 1802, and it was, no doubt, a formidable experience for him. It was also the, the year in which he was elected as a full royal um, academician, which was a very important turning point for him. So both of those things happened in, in that year. So it was a, an important year for him. And it confirmed that sense of confidence and authority, he looked at those great pictures, and um, he learned from them, but not in any way with a kind of sense of inferiority. You know, this is the sort of thing that, that I can aspire to and I can achieve, as indeed he did. Well, let's talk briefly about his his technique, because as you make clear, he's and uh, in, in, in the books make clear, naturally superbly gifted draftsman, yep. incredibly good at, uh, at, yep. at sketching the reality. And then, of course, he becomes yep. known for motion and light and that sort of pre-impression, yeah. pre-impressionistic energy. Yeah, how that's did, right, particularly did, in the latter part of his career. How, how did, did that happen, do you think? He was a very, very accomplished draftsman, and that um, natural talent was reinforced, as you began by saying, by <laughs> the importance of damned hard work, endless practice, endless reinforcement. But alongside that, and I think you see that quite early on in his development, um, was his capacity as a colorist. So not just that skill as a draftsman, but an interesting colour that I think did go beyond what was the norm among his generation of topographical painting. Um, so he developed ways in which he could reflect that in the work. And because he was so interested in colour, um, the accompanying interest, as you say, in qualities of light developed alongside what he wanted to do with colour and gave his work um, a dimension that I won't say was... Um, entirely unique um, among his generation. wasn't the only painter who was thinking about those new possibilities, but I think was developed in his work to an extent that really isn't quite reflected in, in the um, work of his peers. But he, because of that quality of confidence that I mentioned earlier, he was perfectly happy, as it were, to work with other painters to learn from what they were doing um, because he knew his own value. He was never intimidated by what other painters were doing. So those new capacities, colour, light, and later in his career, you know, departures from convention into paintings that do reflect new potentials in art to convey um, speed, to convey movement, to, to convey that kind of um, um, undefined outline. It came again from an absolute assurance that what he was doing was of the highest quality. Just finally, Don, we, we, started, we started this podcast talking about the value of biography. It's interesting that this, uh, and, and its place in, um, in the modern world, it's interesting that Shane's is uh, the book is going to appear at double the length in an electronic version. Is, yeah. that, the, is that the future, do you think, for, for this type of thing, where you'll have a, a shorter thing in, in print and then presumably the electronic version will take you into every painting and, and, and give you that encyclopedic approach to biography? I wouldn't be convinced that it is the future, but it is a future for a certain kind of biographical effort. And I think in the case of Turner particularly, where you, you have... you began by making this point, this extraordinary prodigious output, very, very difficult to feel that you can do it justice in a biography of conventional length for purely practical reasons. So you have then got that enormous resource of being able to support a shorter biography with electronic resource. It wouldn't necessarily um, be helpful or possible or appropriate for every biographical project, but certainly in art history um, with major um, artists like Turner. It is a magnificent extra resource. Well, it's a magnificent review that you've written, and um, it's. Uh, I think these two books do seem, and particularly the Shane's one, does seem to be, as you say, sort of a, a splendid attempt to to deal with a really hugely important artist. And uh, we're very grateful for you joining us uh, today. No, it's a pleasure. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you, Diana. I'm I'm really struck by how how different the two portraits that you seem to get of Turner are here. I mean, because you've got Shane's and and Moyles, and and they have they seem to have such a completely different take on the nature of the man and you can't help but separate the nature of the man from the paintings and so there's an example that that Dinah cites uh, concerning a painting of a bedroom scene which Moyle sees an as an expression of the joy of sex while Shane sees it as a statement about alienation hopelessness and loneliness it seems to me so strange I mean that such a radical difference yeah. of interpretation can I mean how does or that sort of under undermine the very 
idea of writing a biography mm. about such an enigmatic figure. Yeah, although I imagine Victorian sex had a little chunk of alienation in it as well. <laughs> a healthy dose of alienation. Yeah, but I think that's, it also seems to be to go to the point of what you're trying to present here, because mm. I think the Shane's biography, according to Dinah, is trying to present him as this high-minded votary where art is everything. Mm. And, and Whereas Moyles is going Jane, for a kind of an earthlier, more human figure. Here he is. Here, yeah, exactly. Here's the man and... And that probably does reflect a different approach. I mean, I, I yeah. don't know what I'm more interested in. I mean, t- t- yeah. talked a bit with Beryl Bramage. Do we want to get under the bed covers with an artist or a novelist or not? And mm. the answer probably is we no. do, don't we? I don't know. Oh, well, I said no and you yeah. said yes. Well, I'm, so I'm not saying... Clearly a bit of both. Yeah, I, mean, I was talking about <laughs> we in the sort of royal yeah. sense, but not me personally. But I mean, I imagine, is it wrong? I mean, are we entitled, particularly when these always written when people are dead... Mm. Are we entitled to know, you know Turner never married? He seemed to have very unconventional relationships with women. Does that matter? I mean, should we be interested in the, a picture? I think seems- in, in, in Bainbridge's case, it's, 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 it seems quite specific. As we were saying, it's this idea of collecting stories and experiences to then work with and to then separate that would seem artificial. But I mean, obviously, a healthy distance between life and work is, is, is to be encouraged. I think that's right. We shall stay with a British icon, indeed the British icon, and have now moved to an entirely new room so we can devote ourselves solely to this figure, is of course William Shakespeare. Drawing on more than 100 years of our writing, it contains pieces by T.S. Eliot, John Middleton Murray and Berthold Brecht, and more recently, Brian Vickers and Catherine Duncan-Jones. Among other questions, it also attempts to answer how should one bet on Hamlet's duel with Laertes? Can Shakespeare be turned into a computer game? And more existentially, did William Shakespeare write the plays of William Shakespeare? Joining Thea and me in the studio now is the editor of the edition, Shakespearean guru, and dressed today like Doctor Who, Michael Keynes. (laughs) Hello. Yeah, it's true though. (laughs) Michael, first question. Having read 114 years' worth of TLS pieces on Shakespeare, did Shakespeare write Shakespeare? Oh, what a question. <laughs> I thought you were going to ask me which doctor would I be. Yeah. Um, did Shakespeare write Shakespeare? It's amazing that this doubt ever arose, but it did, partly because people started to worship Shakespeare, I think. From the 18th century onwards, Shakespeare became this national icon. And I think a lot of people couldn't stand the idea that somebody who wasn't a nobleman or wasn't Queen Elizabeth I herself actually wrote these amazing works of literature. So I find the whole thing is a kind of urge to destroy the imagination itself, and Shakespeare is the symbol of that. And is it kind of snobbishness then, that effectively this is a son of a glove maker, had a grammar school education, never really travelled, and yet could effectively uh, imagine himself across into countries across the globe and, and write the most pure both intellectual and artistic form of the language is a kind of snobbishness. How, how could a person from that background do it? I think snobbishness is a large part of it. I'm also saying it's philistinism, but snobbishness, absolutely. Everyone who's put forward as an alternative to Shakespeare happens to be much higher born and in a way much better known, and you can find lovely portraits of them in galleries. So it fits, and it's a, it's a different myth. It's a kind of contrary myth to the idea that these works could come out of their head. And also, I mean, when you read all of Shakespeare, it seems to me almost you wouldn't, you wouldn't seek to say that it was written by different people or not written by Shakespeare because it feels like an artistic coherent whole, doesn't it? It feels like the same person writing in, in, in the same way. Yeah, it's a very strange urge. And in a way, uh, to me as well, it's, uh, it travesties the more scholarly urge to find out who Shakespeare worked with among other writers of the day. We know that he worked with writers at the beginning of his career and he collaborated with people towards the end of his career. But of course, you can see this, as you say, this artistic wholeness to it. It's very strange, I think, to want to, to take that away. Uh, so tell us, what your fa- so this is a compilation, a best of uh, the TLS. What were your favourite pieces when you were putting, putting this together? I immediately knew I wanted us to run the piece about Macbeth, the computer game, (laughs) which Julia Briggs reviewed for the TLS in the 1980s. I've no idea who commissioned it. I think it's an absolutely ingenious piece of commissioning. But I think when we first talked about it, I thought that short piece should probably go in. And it's got a beautiful design. It got a beautiful design with it. I, I really like the, the. I thought the betting on Hamlet's duel is a, is a nice little. I commission. thought that was completely fascinating too. Yes, and it's great as well because that was published relatively recently in the past ten years or so, and people keep finding these new and interesting ways to look at the plays. It shows how how very rich they are. What was the first review? The earliest review. The earliest review of Shakespeare. I think there was. I can't remember the name, but I think there is a Shakespeare book reviewed in the very first issue of the TLS back in 1902. The earliest piece that's actually in here, I think, is John Middleton Murray writing about. 
about Coriolanus, which is mm. a great essay. We've had to slightly abridge it, but I think you still get the essence of it. It's a, it's a great account of the play. He was clearly absolutely obsessed with it, and uh, he, he really un- understood, I think, its inner workings, and, and also had some idea, had some theory to offer about how Shakespeare's mind works. And it's kind of an overlooked play, Coriolanus, isn't it? Even now, I, I wonder whether when people talk about the Roman plays, you don't really get to Coriolanus very quickly. Yeah, you're, you're, a, you're a fan of it. I love you? Coriolanus. Yeah. I think it's brilliant, yeah. but when you compare, you know, in tragedies, you talk about Hamlet, Othello, Macbeth and Lear before you get to Coriolanus. In the Roman plays, you go Antony and Cleopatra and uh, Julius Caesar. It always feels like it's a bit of an afterthought, but when I think it's got one of one of the, potentially the most interesting heroes in all of all of Shakespeare. Absolutely, absolutely. I can I can prove that. And I, I think, I don't know if it's that deadly word, interiority, which obviously I'm going to struggle to say <laughs> from now on. I don't know whether it's that. Is that we, we, when we think of those great tragedies, Hamlet and Macbeth maybe in particular, and, and looking to other genres, when we think about Richard II and Richard III, we think about plays that take you into certain people's minds. And Coriolanus has this extraordinary mind. I mean, he's kind of force of nature, isn't he? But you, you don't feel you're opened up to his mind in the same way. I know. No, sorry. I, I thought we could all make the case for a neglected play, a play that's <laughs> overlooked. Thea, do you want to you you start? What's it, is there a favourite um, of your, a play by Shakespeare that you think... I'm not, I'm not going to go with a favourite so much as with... Well, let's go with King John, okay, because good, yeah. I've oh. never seen it performed. Yeah. I, think, I don't think it is performed. I think it's very, very rarely performed, and I wonder if that's got a lot to do with the fact that the Victorians really went for it with, it, with, <laughs> with that play. They seemed to love it, because obviously the, the pomp and the medieval kind of ceremony. He didn't of it. write it all, did he? Is that, is that all Shakespeare's King John? King oh, John, I, I think King John's all, all Shakespeare. Shakespeare. Yeah. But also, it was, it was also an anniversary year for Magna Carta last year, so I would have thought maybe someone would think, oh, the, you know, the, the king who, who signed it. That's strange, isn't it? Because he, as you say, was it's a favourite, yeah. and there are some great scenes, great parts in it. Yeah. Um, the bastard and the great speech, exactly. you know, the childhood. Kind of. It's also the 800th anniversary of King John's death. Is it? Yeah. No. So you know, there are a few, there are a few there months left in the year. If anyone has a troop of actors to hand, just quickly <laughs> well, maybe no. rustle something up. You could do an in-house production. Yeah. Oh God, no! Why did I say yes? To that? No, 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 no! You've just said yes. To that. Yeah. The yeah. Yeah. At least we're not recording this. Um, that's a great uh, neglected play, Michael. What do you want to? What do you want to offer up? What's uh, what's underrated? Well, the problem is, I think so much of it is having had to look again at the work. And you hate Shakespeare. To, I hate Shakespeare. Now. That's it. <laughs> having had to look at it again, I never want to see another play. I'm not recommending any of them. I'd actually maybe say Love's Labour's Lost. No. I know. <laughs> no, I needed say that because. <laughs> I, it's a funny play, and it's actually not featured very much in here, but I did have to look at it again. It's not a funny play. I think that's one of my objections to it. That it's not funny. It's not funny. I think this, this, it is funny you should say that it's not funny. <laughs> I remember seeing an RSC production in the early 90s with Ray Fiennes and Simon Russell Beale and thinking there, was, there were two or three scenes in particular that were, that were great and, and were quite amusing on stage, but also it's a very early play that contains that slight edge of darkness to it. So yeah. there, there are meant to be revels that are meant to be quite funny, as in, say, Midsummer Night's Dream, but they're all brought to a horrible, bitter end, and it's a slightly broken-off play. You know, I, I like that kind of awkwardness mm-hmm. to it. And so when I say, you know, when we're thinking about underrated plays, and plays yeah. that could be, that have been slightly neglected, I think it's one that, that does repay revisiting. And the other thing about it is you can see the, the, the verbal magic is, is all there already i'm gonna go with um although i wonder how underrated this is now measure for measure because uh, it's, it's regarded as a problem play in that sort of category of problem plays often and, and to me it's not a problem play. It's, it's kind of got uh, one of the best baddies in angelo who takes over the city uh, and tries to corrupt uh, a young woman who's trying to save her brother the, the, the characters all in it are, are, I think, very strong. It's very funny. I think that is a genuinely funny play. And is it Lu- Lucio, the, the sort of the, mm-hmm. the gentleman and, and the jokes? And Pompey. And, and Pompey, yeah. which is a bit like Elbow. And it's, it's a lot of the stuff you see elsewhere, I think, is really refined down. And it's kind of at that, he was written at that point where he was really in his creative pomp Shakespeare's the sort of turn of the century or a bit, a bit after isn't it measure for measure that's like right that. yeah and it's regarded as a problem play but to me it's not it's just a, it's just a dark comedy and the moment you put those labels on they can be helpful they can be a bit unhelpful mm. can't they when you say just saying comedies histories tragedies which of course Shakespeare himself uses and are there in the first folio that's how the plays are divided there 
but the moment they, they, those things maybe slightly disguise what's really going on. When I think of measure for measure, I think dark, cynical. Ah, that's a play for our times. But you, you, I see what you mean. Comedy too. So it is, in a way, a play that deserves revisiting. Well, um, I hope that people do check this, uh, this book out. It's a lovely, it's the, sort of the best of the TLS on Shakespeare. You can buy it from Smith's or Amazon or by clicking on timesprintgallery.co.uk forward slash Shakespeare. That's timesprintgallery.co.uk forward slash Shakespeare. That's right, isn't it? Yeah. That's almost all we have time this week. I'd like to thank alongside there, of course, our guest Ruth Skur, Jessica Loudis, Dinah Birch, plus, of course, the doctor, Michael Keynes. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. We'll be back every week with highlights from the TLS and discussions on other cultural subjects. This week's paper is now on sale with the pieces we've discussed today, plus Robert Anasi on Manhattan's Hippest Street, Danny Carlin on Bob Dylan's elevation to the Nobel Pantheon. Quick check with you both. Good thing or bad thing, Thea? Uh, Nobel winning Bob Dylan? Good thing. Good thing? Yeah. Michael? I'm going to say bad thing, but I am writing about literary prizes at the moment, so from that point of view, very good thing. Wonderful (laughs) thing. Yeah. Bad but good, I think that's probably very fair. An exclusive extract is also in the paper from Ali Smith's new novel, Autumn, and Eric Bolson reflects on 25 years of postmodernism, among much more. You can visit our website, the-tls.co.uk, to learn more about our print and digital subscriptions. And do come back daily to the site for new original pieces from TLS writers, including 20 Questions with David Lodge, Daisy Dunn on the pretend trial of Brutus and Cassius, and Andrew Skull on Stendhal Syndrome, which is a psychosomatic reaction to great art. You can sign up for our weekly newsletter there and make sure you follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook. Is that everything, Thea? It's reviewer. Oh, yes, reviewers on iTunes if you're going to be nice. Uh, There'll be a special extra podcast this week. Our fiction editor, Toby Lichtig, will be interviewing Ali Smith about her new novel and she'll be reading from it. Come back and listen to that and come back next week for some more TLS voices. Until then, from Thea and from me, goodbye. the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.